Book Four, Three Love Problems, Chapter Thirty-Four. It was on a morning of May that Peter Featherstone was buried. In the prosaic neighborhood of Middlemarch, May was not always warm and sunny, and on this particular morning a chill wind was blowing the blossoms from the surrounding gardens onto the green mounds of Lowick churchyard. Swiftly moving clouds only now and then allowed a gleam to light up any object, whether ugly or beautiful, that happened to stand within its golden shower. In the churchyard the objects were remarkably various, for there was a little country crowd waiting to see the funeral. The news had spread that it was to be a big burying. The old gentleman had left written directions about everything and meant to have a funeral beyond his betters. This was true, for old Featherstone had not been a harbigan whose passions had all been devoured by the ever-lean and ever-hungry passion of saving, and who would drive a bargain with his undertaker beforehand. He loved money, but he also loved to spend it in gratifying his peculiar tastes, and perhaps he loved it best of all as a means of making others feel his power more or less uncomfortably. If any one will here contend that there must have been traits of goodness in Old Featherstone, I will not presume to deny this, but I must observe that goodness is of a modest nature, easily discouraged, and when much privacy, elbowed in early life by unabashed vices, is apt to retire into extreme privacy, so that it is more easily believed in by those who construct a selfish old gentleman theoretically than by those who form the narrower judgments based on his personal acquaintance. In any case, he had been bent on having a handsome funeral and on having persons bid to it who would rather have stayed at home. He had even desired that female relatives should follow him to the grave, and poor Sister Martha had taken a difficult journey for this purpose from the chalky flat. She and Jane would have been altogether cheered, in a tearful manner, by this sign that a brother who disliked seeing them while he was living had been prospectively fond of their presence when he should have become a testator if the sign had not been made equivocal by being extended to Mrs. Vincy, whose expense in handsome crepe seemed to imply the most presumptuous hopes, aggravated by a bloom of complexion which told pretty plainly that she was not a blood relation, but of that generally objectionable class called wife's kin. We are, all of us, imaginative in some form or other, for images are the brood of desire, and poor old Featherstone, who laughed much at the way in which others cajoled themselves, did not escape the fellowship of illusion. In writing the program for his burial, he certainly did not make clear to himself that his pleasure in the little drama of which it formed a part was confined to anticipation. In chuckling over the vexations he could inflict by the rigid clutch of his dead hand, he inevitably mingled his consciousness with that livid, stagnant presence, and so far as he was preoccupied with the future life, it was with one of gratification inside his coffin. Thus Old Featherstone was imaginative, after his fashion. However, the three mourning coaches were filled according to the written orders of the deceased. There were pallbearers on horseback, with the richest scarves and hatbands, and even the underbearers had trappings of woe which were of a good, well-priced quality. The black procession, when dismounted, looked the larger for the smallness of the churchyard. The heavy human faces and the black draperies shivering in the wind seemed to tell of a world strangely incongruous, with the lightly dropping blossoms and the gleams of sunshine on the daisies. The clergyman who met the procession was Mr. Cadwallader, also according to the request of Peter Featherstone, prompted as usual by peculiar reasons. Having a contempt for curates, whom he always called understrappers, he was resolved to be buried by a beneficed clergyman. Mr. Cossabon was out of the question, not merely because he declined duty of this sort, but because Featherstone had an especial dislike to him as the rector of his own parish, 
who had a lien on the land in the shape of tithe, also as the deliverer of morning sermons, which the old man, being in his pew and not at all sleepy, had been obliged to sit through with an inward snarl. He had an objection to a parson stuck up above his head preaching to him, but his relations with Mr. Cadwallader had been of a different kind. The trout stream which ran through Mr. Cossabon's land took its course through Featherstone's also, so that Mr. Cadwallader was a parson who had had to ask a favor instead of preaching. Moreover, he was one of the high gentry living four miles away from Lowick, and was thus exalted to an equal sky with the sheriff of the county and other dignities vaguely regarded as necessary to the system of things. There would be a satisfaction in being buried by Mr. Cadwallader, whose very name offered a fine opportunity for pronouncing wrongly if you liked. This distinction conferred on the rector of Tipton and Freshett was the reason why Mrs. Cadwallader made one of the group that watched Old Featherstone's funeral from an upper window of the manor. She was not fond of visiting that house, but she liked, as she said, to see collections of strange animals such as there would be at this funeral, and she had persuaded Sir James and the young lady Chetham to drive the rector and herself to Lowick in order that the visit might be altogether pleasant. I will go anywhere with you, Mrs. Cadwallader, Celia had said but I don't like funerals. Oh, my dear, when you have a clergyman in your family, you must accommodate your tastes. I did that very early. When I married Humphrey, I made up my mind to like sermons, and I set out by liking the end very much. That soon spread to the middle and the beginning, because I couldn't have the end without them. No, to be sure not, said the dowager Lady Chetham, with stately emphasis. The upper window from which the funeral could be well seen was in the room occupied by Mr. Cossabon when he had been forbidden to work, but he had resumed nearly his habitual style of life now in spite of warnings and prescriptions, and after politely welcoming Mrs. Cadwallader had slipped again into the library to chew a cud of erudite mistake about Cush and Mizraim. But for her visitors, Dorothea too might have been shut up in the library and would not have witnessed the scene of old Mr. Featherstone's funeral, which, aloof as it seemed to be from the tenor of her life, always afterwards came back to her at the touch of certain sensitive points in memory, just as the vision of St. Peter's at Rome was inwoven with moods of despondency. Scenes which make vital changes in our neighbor's lot are but the background of our own, yet like a particular aspect of the fields and trees, they become associated for us with the epochs of our own history, and make a part of that unity which lies in the selection of our keenest consciousness. The dreamlike association of something alien and ill-understood with the deepest secrets of her experience seemed to mirror that sense of loneliness which was due to the very ardor of Dorothea's nature. The country gentry of old time lived in a rarefied social air. Dotted apart on their stations up in the mountain, they looked down with imperfect discrimination on the belts of thicker life below, and Dorothea was not at ease in the perspective and chilliness of that height. I shall not look any more, said Celia, after the train had entered the church placing herself a little behind her husband's elbow so that she could slyly touch his coat with her cheek. I dare say Dodo likes it. She's fond of melancholy things and ugly people. I'm fond of knowing something about the people I live among, said Dorothea, who had been watching everything with the interest of a monk on his holiday tour. It seems to me we know nothing of our neighbors, unless they're cottagers. One is constantly wondering what sort of lives other people lead and how they take things. I'm quite obliged to Mrs. Catwallader for coming and calling me out of the library. Quite right to feel obliged to me, said Mrs. Catwallader. Your rich Lowick farmers are as curious as any buffaloes or bisons, and I dare say you don't half see them at church. They're quite different from your uncle's tenants or Sir James's. Monsters. Farmers without landlords. One can't tell how to class them. 
most of these followers are not Lowick people, said Sir James. I suppose they are legatees from a distance, or from Middlemarch. Lovegood tells me the old fellow has left a good deal of money, as well as land. Think of that now, when so many younger sons can't dine at their own expense, said Mrs. Cadwallader. Ah, turning round at the sound of the opening door, here's Mr. Brooke. I felt that we were incomplete before, and here's the explanation. You're come to see this old funeral, of course? No, I come to look after Mr. Casabon, to see how he goes on, you know, and to bring a little news, little news, my dear, said Mr. Brooke, nodding at Dorothea as she came towards him. I looked into the library, and I saw Casabon over his books. I told him it wouldn't do. I said, this will never do, you know. Think of your wife, Casabon, and he promised me to come up. I didn't tell him my news. I said he must come up. Another coming out of church, Mrs. Cadwallader exclaimed. Dear me, what a wonderfully mixed set. Mr. Lydgate is doctor, I suppose, but that is really a good-looking woman, and the fair young man must be her son. Who are they, Sir James, do you know? I see Vincy, the mayor of Middlemarch. They're probably his wife and son, said Sir James, looking interrogatively at Mr. Brooke, who nodded and said, Yes, a very decent family, a very good fellow is Vincy, a credit to the manufacturing interest. You've seen him at my house, you know. Ah, yes, one of your secret committee, said Mrs. Cadwallader, provokingly. A coursing fellow, though, said Sir James, with a fox hunter's disgust. And one of those who suck the life out of the wretched handloom weavers in Tipton and Freshet. That is how his family looks so fair and sleek, said Mrs. Cadwallader. Those dark, purple-faced people are an excellent foil. Dear me, they're like a set of jugs. Do look at Humphrey. One might fancy him an ugly archangel towering above them in his white surplice. It's a solemn thing, though, a funeral, said Mr. Brooke. If you take it in that light, you know. But I'm not taking it in that light. I can't wear my solemnity too often, else it will go to rags. It was time the old man died, and none of these people are sorry. How piteous, said Dorothea. This funeral seems to me the most dismal thing I ever saw. It is a blot on the morning. I cannot bear to think that anyone should die and leave no love behind. She was going to say more, but she saw her husband enter and seat himself a little in the background. The difference his presence made to her was not always a happy one. She felt that he often inwardly objected to her speech. Positively, exclaimed Mrs. Cadwallader, there's a new face come out from behind that broad man, queerer than any of them. A little round head with bulging eyes. A sort of frog face. Do look. He must be of another blood, I think. Let me see, said Celia, with awakened curiosity, standing behind Mrs. Cadwallader and leaning forward over her head. Oh, what an odd face. Then with a quick change to another sort of surprised expression, she added, Why, Dodo, you never told me that Mr. Ladislaw was come again. Dorothea felt a shock of alarm. Everyone noticed her sudden paleness as she looked up immediately at her uncle, while Mr. Casabon looked at her. He came with me, you know. He's my guest. What's up with me at the Grange? said Mr. Brooke in his easiest tone, nodding at Dorothea, as if the announcement were just what she might have expected. And we have brought the picture at the top of the carriage. I knew you would be pleased with the surprise, Casabon. There you are to the very life, as Aquinas, you know. Quite the right sort of thing. And you will hear young Ladislaw talk about it. He talked uncommonly well, points out this, that, and the other, knows art and everything of that kind companionable, you know, is up with you in any track, what I've been wanting a long while. Mr. Casabon bowed with cold politeness, mastering his irritation, but only so far as to be silent. He remembered Will's letter quite as well as Dorothea did, 
he had noticed that it was not among the letters which had been reserved for him on his recovery, and secretly concluding that Dorothea had sent word to Will not to come to Lowick, he had shrunk with proud sensitiveness from ever recurring to the subject. He now inferred that she had asked her uncle to invite Will to the Grange, and she felt it impossible at that moment to enter into any explanation. Mrs. Cadwallader's eyes, diverted from the churchyard, saw a good deal of dumb show which was not so intelligible to her as she could have desired, and could not repress the question, Who is Mr. Ladislaw? A young relative of Mr. Casabon's, said Sir James promptly. His good nature often made him quick and clear-seeing in personal matters, and he had divined from Dorothea's glance at her husband that there was some alarm in her mind. A very nice young fellow. Casabon has done everything for him, explained Mr. Brooke. He repays your expense in him, Casabon, he went on, nodding encouragingly. I hope he will stay with me a long while, and we shall make something of my documents. I have plenty of ideas and facts, you know, and I can see he is just the man to put them into shape. Remembers what the right quotations are, omne tulit punctum, and that sort of thing. Gives subjects a kind of turn. I invited him some time ago when you were ill, Casabon. Dorothea said you couldn't have anybody in the house, you know, and she asked me to write. Poor Dorothea felt that every word of her uncle's was about as pleasant as a grain of sand in the eye to Mr. Casabon. It would be altogether unfitting now to explain that she had not wished her uncle to invite Will Ladislaw. She could not in the least make clear to herself the reasons for her husband's dislike to his presence, a dislike painfully impressed on her by the scene in the library, but she felt the unbecomingness of saying anything that might convey a notion of it to others. Mr. Casabon, indeed, had not thoroughly represented those mixed reasons to himself, irritated feeling with him, as with all of us, seeking rather for justification than for self-knowledge, but he wished to repress outward signs, and only Dorothea could discern the changes in her husband's face before he observed with more of dignified bending and sing-song than usual, "'You are exceedingly hospitable, my dear sir, and I owe you acknowledgments for exercising your hospitality towards a relative of mine.' The funeral was ended now, and the churchyard was being cleared. Now you can see him, Mrs. Cadwallader, said Celia. He's just like a miniature of Mr. Casabon's aunt that hangs in Dorothea's boudoir. Quite nice-looking. A very pretty sprig, said Mrs. Cadwallader, dryly. What is your nephew to be, Mr. Casabon? Pardon me, he's not my nephew. He's my cousin. Well, you know, interposed Mr. Brooke, he is trying his wings. He is just the sort of young fellow to rise. I should be glad to give him an opportunity. He would make a good secretary now, like Hobbes, Milton, Swift, that sort of man. I understand, said Mrs. Cadwallader. One who can write speeches. I'll fetch him in now, eh, Casabon? said Mr. Brooke. He wouldn't come in till I'd announced him, you know, and we'll go down and look at the picture. There you are to the life, a deep, subtle sort of thinker with his forefinger on the page, while St. Bonaventure, or somebody else, rather fat and florid, is looking up at the Trinity. Everything is symbolical, you know, the higher style of art. I like that up to a certain point, but not too far. It's rather straining to keep up with, you know. But you are at home in that, Casabon, and your painter's flesh is good. Solidity, transparency, everything of that sort. I went into that a great deal at one time. However, I'll go and fetch Ladislaw. Chapter 35 when the animals entered the ark in pairs, one may imagine that allied species made much private remark on each other, and were tempted to think that so many forms feeding on the same store of fodder were eminently superfluous, as tending to diminish the rations. I fear the part played by the vultures on that occasion would be too painful for art to represent, 
those birds being disadvantageously naked about the gullet and apparently without rites and ceremonies. The same sort of temptation befell the Christian carnivora who formed Peter Featherstone's funeral procession, most of them having their minds bent on a limited store which each would have liked to get the most of. The long-recognized blood relations and connections by marriage made already a goodly number, which, multiplied by possibilities, presented a fine range for jealous conjecture and pathetic hopefulness. Jealousy of the Vincies had created a fellowship and hostility among all persons of the Featherstone blood, so that in the absence of any decided indication that one of themselves was to have more than the rest, the dread lest that long-legged Fred Vinci should have the land was necessarily dominant. Though it left abundant feeling and leisure for vaguer jealousies, such as were entertained towards Mary Garth, Solomon found time to reflect that Jonah was undeserving, and Jonah to abuse Solomon as greedy. Jane, the elder sister, held that Martha's children ought not to expect so much as the young walls, and Martha, more lax on the subject of primogeniture, was sorry to think that Jane was so having. The nearest of kin were naturally impressed with the unreasonableness of expectations in cousins and second cousins, and used their arithmetic in reckoning the large sums that small legacies might mount to, if there were too many of them. Two cousins were present to hear the will, and a second cousin besides Mr. Trumbull. This second cousin was a Middlemarch mercer of polite manners and superfluous aspirates. The two cousins were elderly men from Brassing, one of them conscious of claims on the score of inconvenient expense sustained by him in presence of oysters and other edibles and his rich cousin Peter, the other entirely saturnine, leaning his hands and chin on a stick and conscious of claims based on no narrow performance but on merit generally. Both blameless citizens of Brassing, who wished that Jonah Featherstone did not live there. The wit of a family is usually best received among strangers. Why, Trumbull himself is pretty sure of five hundred. That, you may depend. I shouldn't wonder if my brother promised him, said Solomon, musing aloud with his sisters the evening before the funeral. Dear, dear, said poor sister Martha, whose imagination of hundreds had been habitually narrowed to the amount of her unpaid rent. But in the morning, all the ordinary currents of conjecture were disturbed by the presence of a strange mourner who had plashed among them as if from the moon. This was the stranger described by Mrs. Cadwallader as frog-faced, a man perhaps about two or three and thirty, whose prominent eyes, thin-lipped, downward-curved mouth, and hair sleekly brushed away from a forehead that sank suddenly above the ridge of the eyebrows, certainly gave his face a Batrachian unchangeableness of expression. Here, clearly, was a new legatee. Else why was he bidden as a mourner? Here were new possibilities, raising a new uncertainty which almost checked remark in the morning coaches. We're all humiliated by the sudden discovery of a fact which has existed very comfortably and perhaps been staring at us in private while we have been making up our world entirely without it. No one had seen this questionable stranger before except Mary Garth, and she knew nothing more of him than that he had twice been to Stone Court when Mr. Featherstone was downstairs, and had sat alone with him for several hours. She had found an opportunity of mentioning this to her father, and perhaps Caleb's were the only eyes except the lawyer's which examined the stranger with more of inquiry than of disgust or suspicion. Caleb Garth, having little expectation and less cupidity, was interested in the verification of his own guesses, and the calmness with which he half-smilingly rubbed his chin and shot intelligent glances much as if he were valuing a tree, 
made a fine contrast with the alarm or scorn visible in other faces when the unknown mourner, whose name was understood to be Rig, entered the wainscoted parlor and took his seat near the door to make part of the audience when the will should be read. Just then, Mr. Solomon and Mr. Jonah were gone upstairs with the lawyer to search for the will, and Mrs. Wall, seeing two vacant seats between herself and Mr. Borthrop Trumbull, had the spirit to move next to that great authority, who was handling his watch seals and trimming his outlines with the determination not to show anything so compromising to a man of ability as wonder or surprise. I suppose you know everything about what my poor brother's done, Mr. Trumbull, said Mrs. Wall in her lowest of her woolly tones, while she turned her crepe-shadowed bonnet toward Mr. Trumbull's ear. My good lady, whatever was told me was told in confidence, said the auctioneer, putting his hand up to screen that secret. Then who've made sure of their good luck may be disappointed yet, Mrs. Wall continued, finding some relief in this communication. Hopes are often delusive, said Mr. Trumbull still in confidence. Ah, said Mrs. Wall, looking across at the Vincies and then moving back to the side of her sister Martha. It's wonderful how close poor Peter was, she said in the same undertones. We none of us know what he might have had on his mind. I only hope and trust he wasn't a worse liver than we think of, Martha. Poor Mrs. Cranch was bulky and breathing asthmatically had the additional motive for making her remarks unexceptionable and giving them a general bearing that even her whispers were loud and liable to sudden bursts, like those of a deranged barrel organ. I never was covetous, Jane, she replied, but I have six children, and I've buried three, and I didn't marry into money. The eldest that sits there is but nineteen, so I leave you to guess, and stock always short, and land most awkward. But if ever I've begged and prayed, it's been to God above but where there's one brother a bachelor and the other childless after twice marrying, anybody might think. Meanwhile, Mr. Vincey had glanced at the passive face of Mr. Rigg and had taken out his snuff-box and tapped it, but had put it again unopened as an indulgence which, however clarifying to the judgment, was unsuited to the occasion. I shouldn't wonder if Featherstone had better feelings than any of us gave him credit for, he observed in the ear of his wife. This funeral shows a thought about everybody. Looks well when a man wants to be followed by his friends, and if they're humble, not to be ashamed of them. I should be all the better pleased if he'd left lots of small legacies. They may be uncommonly useful to fellows in a small way. Everything is as handsome as could be. Crepe and silk and everything, said Mrs. Vincy contentedly. But I'm sorry to say that Fred was under some difficulty in repressing a laugh, which would have been more unsuitable than his father's snuff-box. Fred had overheard Mr. Jonah suggesting something about a love child, and with this thought in his mind, the stranger's face, which happened to be opposite him, affected him too ludicrously. Mary Garth, discerning his distress and the twitchings of his mouth, in his recourse to a cough, came cleverly to his rescue by asking him to change seats with her, so that he got into a shadowy corner. Fred was feeling as good-naturedly as possible towards everybody, including Rig, and having some relenting towards all these people who were less lucky than he was aware of being himself, he would not for the world have behaved amiss. Still, it was particularly easy to laugh. But the entrance of the lawyer and the two brothers drew everyone's attention. The lawyer was Mr. Standish, and he had come to Stone Court this morning, believing that he knew thoroughly well who would be pleased and who disappointed before the day was over. The will he expected to read was the last of three, which he had drawn up for Mr. Featherstone. Mr. Standish was not a man who varied his manners. He behaved with the same deep-voiced, offhand civility to everybody, as if he saw no difference in them and talked chiefly of the hay crop, which would be very fine by God, 
of the last bulletins concerning the king, and of the Duke of Clarence, who was a sailor every inch of him, and just the man to rule over an island like Britain. Old Featherstone had often reflected as he sat looking at the fire that Standish would be surprised some day. It is true that if he had done as he liked at the last, and burnt the will drawn up by another lawyer, he would not have secured that minor end. Still, he had had his pleasure in ruminating on it, and certainly Mr. Standish was surprised, but not at all sorry. On the contrary, he rather enjoyed the zest of a little curiosity in his own mind, which the discovery of a second will added to the prospective amazement on the part of the Featherstone family. As to the sentiments of Solomon and Jonah, they were held in utter suspense. It seemed to them that the old will would have a certain validity, and that there might be such an interlacement of poor Peter's former and latter intentions as to create endless lawing before anybody came by their own, an inconvenience which would have at least the advantage of going all round. Hence the brothers showed a thoroughly neutral gravity as they re-entered with Mr. Standish, but Solomon took out his white handkerchief again with the sense that in any case there would be affected passages and crying at funerals, whoever try, was customarily served up in lawn. Perhaps the person who felt the most throbbing excitement at this moment was Mary Garth, in the consciousness that it was she who had virtually determined the production of this second will, which might have momentous effects on the lot of some persons present. No soul except herself knew what had passed on that final night. The will I hold in my hand, said Mr. Standish, who, seated at the table in the middle of the room, took his time about everything, including the coughs with which he showed a disposition to clear his voice was drawn up by myself and executed by our deceased friend on the 9th of August, 1825, but I find that there is a subsequent instrument hitherto unknown to me, bearing date the 20th of July, 1826, hardly a year later than the previous one, and there is farther, I see, Mr. Standish was cautiously traveling over the document with his spectacles, a codicil to this latter will, bearing date March 1st, 1828. Dear. Dear, said Sister Martha, not meaning to be audible, but driven to some articulation under this pressure of dates, I shall begin by reading the earlier will, continued Mr. Standish, since such, as appears by his not having destroyed the document, was the intention of the deceased. The preamble was felt to be rather long, and several besides Solomon shook their heads pathetically, looking on the ground. All eyes avoided meeting other eyes, and were chiefly fixed either on the spots in the tablecloth or on Mr. Standish's bald head excepting Mary Garth. When all the rest were trying to look nowhere in particular, it was safe for her to look at them. And at the sound of the first given bequeath, she could see all complexions changing subtly, as if some faint vibration were passing through them, save that of Mr. Rigg. He sat in unaltered calm, and in fact, the company, preoccupied with more important problems and with the complication of listening to bequests which might or might not be revoked, had ceased to think of him. Fred blushed, and Mr. Vincey found it impossible to do without his snuff-box in his hand though we kept it closed. The small bequests came first, and even the recollection that there was another will and that poor Peter might have thought better of it could not quell the rising disgust and indignation. One likes to be done well by in every tense, past, present, and future, and here was Peter, capable five years ago of leaving only two hundred apiece to his own brothers and sisters, and only a hundred apiece to his own nephews and nieces. The Garths were not mentioned, but Mrs. Vincey and Rosamond were to each have a hundred. Mr. Trumbull was to have the gold-headed cane and fifty pounds. The other second cousins and the cousins present were each to have the like handsome sum, which, as the Saturnine cousin observed, was a sort of legacy that left a man nowhere, and there was much more of such offensive dribbling in favor of persons not present. Problematical and, it was to be feared, low connections. 
Altogether, reckoning hastily, here were about three thousand disposed of. Where then had Peter meant the rest of the money to go, and where the land, and what was revoked and what not revoked, and was the revocation for better or for worse? All emotion must be conditional and might turn out to be the wrong thing. The men were strong enough to bear up and keep quiet under this confused suspense, some letting their lower lip fall, others pursing it up, according to the habit of their muscles. But Jane and Martha sank under the rush of questions and began to cry. Poor Mrs. Cranch, being half moved with the consolation of getting any hundreds at all without working for them, and half aware that her share was scanty, whereas Mrs. Wall's mind was entirely flooded with the sense of being an own sister and getting little, while somebody else was to have much. The general expectation was that the much would fall to Fred Vincy, but the Vincys themselves were surprised when ten thousand pounds in specified investments were declared to be bequeathed to him. Was the land coming too? Fred bit his lips. It was difficult to help smiling, and Mrs. Vincy felt herself the happiest of women, possible revocation shrinking out of sight in this dazzling vision. There was still a residue of personal property as well as the land, but the whole was left to one person, and that person was, oh, possibilities, oh, expectations, founded on the favor of close old gentlemen, oh, endless vocatives that would still leave expression slipping helpless from the measurement of mortal folly. That residuary legatee was Joshua Rigg who was also sole executor, and who was to take thenceforth the name of Featherstone. There was a rustling, which seemed like a shudder, running around the room. Everyone stared afresh at Mr. Rigg, who apparently experienced no surprise. A most singular testamentary disposition, exclaimed Mr. Trumbull, referring for once that he should be considered ignorant in the past. But there's a second will. There's a further document. We have not yet heard the final wishes of the deceased. Mary Garth was feeling that what they had yet to hear were not the final wishes. The second will revoked everything except the legacies to the low persons before mentioned, some alterations in these being the occasion of the codicil, and the bequest of all the land lying in Lowick Parish with all the stock and household furniture to Joshua Rigg. The residue of the property was to be voted to the erection and endowment of almshouses for old men, to be called Featherstone's Alms Houses, and to be built on a piece of land near Middlemarch already bought for the purpose by the testator, he wishing, so the document declared, to please God Almighty. Nobody present had a farthing, but Mr. Trumbull had the gold-headed cane. It took some time for the company to recover the power of expression. Mary dared not look at Fred. Mr. Vincy was the first to speak, after using his snuff-box energetically, and he spoke with loud indignation. The most unaccountable will I ever heard. I should say he was not in his right mind when he made it. I should say that this last will was void, added Mr. Vincy, feeling that this expression put the thing in the true light. Eh, Standish? Our deceased friend always knew what he was about, I think, said Mr. Standish. Everything is quite regular. Here is a letter from Clemens of Brassing tied with the will. He drew it up, a very respectful solicitor. I never noticed any alienation of mind, any aberration of intellect in the late Mr. Featherstone, said Borthrop Trumbull, but I call this will eccentric. I was always willingly of service to the old soul, and he intimated pretty plainly a sense of obligation which would show itself in his will. The gold-headed cane is farcical, considered as an acknowledgment to me, but happily I am above mercenary considerations. There's nothing very surprising in the matter that I can see, said Caleb Garth. Anybody might have had more reason for wondering if the will had been what you might expect from an open-minded, straightforward man. For my part, I wish there was no such thing as a will. That's a strange sentiment to come from a Christian, by God, said the lawyer. I should like to know how you'll back that up, Garth. Oh, 
said Caleb, leaning forward, adjusting his fingertips with nicety and looking meditatively on the ground. It always seemed to him that words were the hardest part of business. But here, Mr. Jonah Featherstone made himself heard. Well, he was always a fine hypocrite, was my brother Peter, but this will cuts out everything. If I'd known, a wagon and six horses shouldn't have drawn me from brassing. I'll put a white hat and drab coat on tomorrow. Dear, dear, wept Mrs. Cranch, and we've been at the expense of traveling and that poor lad sitting idle here so long. It's the first time I ever heard my brother Peter was so wishful to please God Almighty. But if I was to be struck helpless, I must say it's hard. I can think no other. It'll do him no good where he's gone, that's my belief, said Solomon, with a bitterness which was remarkably genuine, though his tone could not help being sly. Peter was a bad liver, and almshouses won't cover it when he's had the impudence to show it at the last. And all the while had got his own lawful family, brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews, and has sat in church with them whenever he thought well to come, said Mrs. Wall, and might have left his property so respectable to them that's never been used to extravagance or unsteadiness in no manner of way, and not so poor but what they could have saved every penny and made more of it, and me, the trouble I've been at, times and times, to come here and be sisterly, and him with things on his mind all the while that might make anybody's flesh creep. But if the Almighty's allowed it, he means to punish him for it. Brother Solomon, I shall be going, if he'll drive me. I've no desire to put my foot on the premises again, said Solomon. Got land of my own and a property of my own to will away. It's a poor tale how luck goes in the world, said Jonah. It never answers to have a bit of spirit in you. You'd better be a dog in the manger, but those above ground might learn a lesson. One fool's will is enough in a family. There's more ways than one of being a fool, said Solomon. I shan't leave my money to be poured down the sink, and I shan't leave it to foundlings from Africa. I like featherstones that were brewed such and not turned featherstones with sticking the name on them. Solomon addressed these remarks and allowed a sigh to Mrs. Wall as he rose to accompany her. Brother Jonah felt himself capable of much more stinging wit than this, but he reflected that there was no use in offending the new proprietor of Stone Court until you were certain that he was quite without intentions of hospitality towards witty men whose name he was about to bear. Mr. Joshua Rigg, in fact, appeared to trouble himself little about any innuendos, but showed a notable change of manner, walking coolly up to Mr. Standish and putting business questions with much coolness. He had a high, chirping voice and a vile accent. Fred, whom he no longer moved to laughter, thought him the lowest monster he had ever seen. But Fred was feeling rather sick. The Middlemarch Mercer waited for an opportunity of engaging Mr. Rigg in conversation. There was no knowing how many pairs of legs the new proprietor might require a hose for, and profits were more to be relied on than legacies. Also, the Mercer, as a second cousin, was dispassionate enough to feel curiosity. Mr. Vincey, after his one outburst, had remained proudly silent, though too much preoccupied with unpleasant feelings to think of moving, till he observed that his wife had gone to Fred's side and was crying silently while she held her darling's hand. He rose immediately, and turning his back on the company while he said to her in an undertone, "'Don't give way, Lucy. Don't make a fool of yourself, my dear, before these people,' he added in his usual loud voice, "'Go and order the phaeton, Fred. I have no time to waste.'" Mary Garth had before this been getting ready to go home with her father. She met Fred in the hall, and now for the first time had the courage to look at him. He had that withered sort of paleness which will sometimes come on young faces, and his hand was very cold when she took it. Mary, too, was agitated. She was conscious that, fatally, without will of her own, she had perhaps made a great difference to Fred's lot. Goodbye, she said with affectionate sadness. Be brave, Fred. I do believe you're better without the money. What was the good of it to Mr. Featherstone? That's all very fine, said Fred, pettishly. 
What is a fellow to do? I must go into the church now. He knew that this would vex Mary very well, and she must tell him what else he could do. And I thought I should be able to pay your father at once and make everything right, and you have not even a hundred pounds left you. What shall you do now, Mary? Take another situation, of course, as soon as I can get one. My father has enough to do to keep the rest without me. Goodbye. In a very short time, Stone Court was cleared of well-brewed featherstones and other long-accustomed visitors. Another stranger had been brought to settle in the neighborhood of Middlemarch, but in the case of Mr. Rig Featherstone, there was more discontent with immediate visible consequences than speculation as to the effect which his presence might have in the future. No soul was prophetic enough to have any foreboding as to what might appear on the trial of Joshua Rigg, and here I am naturally led to reflect on the means of elevating a low subject. Historical parallels are remarkably efficient in this way. The chief objection to them is that the diligent narrator may lack space, or what is often the same thing, may not be able to think of them with any degree of particularity, though he may have a philosophical confidence that, if known, they would be illustrative. It seems an easier and shorter way to dignity to observe that, since there never was a true story which could not be told in parables, where you might put a monkey for a margrave and vice versa, whatever has been or is to be narrated by me about low people may be ennobled by beings considered a parable, so that if any bad habits and ugly consequences are brought into view, the reader may have the relief of regarding them as not more than figuratively ungenteel, and may feel himself virtually in company with persons of some style. Thus, while I tell the truth about Lubies, my reader's imagination need not be entirely excluded from an occupation with lords, and the petty sums which any bankrupt of high standing would be sorry to retire upon may be lifted to the level of high commercial transactions by the inexpensive addition of proportional ciphers. As to any provincial history in which the agents are all of high moral rank, that must be of a date long posterior to the first reform bill, and Peter Featherstone, you perceive, was dead and buried some months before Lord Grey came into office. Chapter 36 Mr. Vincey went home from the reading of the will with his point of view considerably changed in relation to many subjects. He was an open-minded man, but given to indirect modes of expressing himself. When he was disappointed in a market for his silk braids, he swore at the groom— when his brother-in-law Bulstrode had vexed him, he made cutting remarks on Methodism, and it was now apparent that he regarded Fred's idleness with a sudden increase of severity by his throwing an embroidered cap out of the smoking-room onto the hall floor. "'Well, sir,' he observed when that young gentleman was moving off to bed, "'I hope you've made up your mind now to go up next term and pass your examination. I've taken my resolution, so I advise you to lose no time in taking yours.' Fred made no answer." He was too utterly depressed. Twenty-four hours ago, he had thought that instead of needing to know what he should do, he should by this time know that he needed to do nothing, that he should hunt in pink, have a first-rate hunter, ride to cover on a fine hack, and be generally respected for doing so. Moreover, that he should be able to at once pay Mr. Garth, and that Mary could no longer have any reason for not marrying him. And all this was to have come without study or other inconvenience, purely by the favor of providence in the shape of an old gentleman's caprice. But now, at the end of the twenty-four hours, all those firm expectations were upset. It was rather hard lines that, while he was smarting under this disappointment, he should be treated as if he could have helped it. But he went away silently, and his mother pleaded for him. "'Don't be hard on the poor boy, Vincy,' 
He'll turn out well yet, though that wicked man has deceived him. I feel as sure as I sit here, Fred will turn out well. Else why was he brought back from the brink of the grave? And I call it a robbery. It was like giving him the land, to promise it. And what is promising if making everybody believe is not promising? And you see, he did leave him ten thousand pounds, and then took it away again. "'Took it away again,' said Mr. Vincey pettishly. "'I tell you, the lad's an unlucky lad, Lucy, and you've always spoiled him.' "'Well, Vincey, he was my first, and you made a fine fuss with him when he came. "'You were as proud as proud,' said Mrs. Vincey, easily recovering her cheerful smile. "'Who knows what babies will turn to? I was fool enough, I dare say,' said the husband, more mildly, however. "'But who has handsomer, better children than ours?' "'Fred is far beyond other people's sons. "'You may hear it in his speech that he's kept college company. "'And Rosamond, where is there a girl like her? "'She might stand beside any lady in the land and only look the better for it. "'You see, Mr. Lydgate has kept the highest company and been everywhere, "'and he fell in love with her at once. "'Not but what I could have wished Rosamond had not engaged herself. "'She might have met somebody on a visit who would have been a far better match.' I mean at her schoolfellow, Miss Willoughby's. There are relations in that family quite as high as Mr. Lydgate's. Damn relations, said Mr. Vincey. I've had enough of them. I don't want a son-in-law who's got nothing but his relations to recommend him. Why, my dear, said Mrs. Vincey, you seemed as pleased as could be about it. It's true I wasn't at home, but Rosamond told me you hadn't a word to say against the engagement, and she has begun to buy in the best linen and cambric for her underclothing. "'Not by my will,' said Mr. Vincey. "'I shall have enough to do this year with an idle scamp of a son without paying for wedding clothes. "'The times are as tight as can be. Everybody is being ruined. "'And I don't believe Lydgate has got a farthing. "'I shan't give my consent to their marrying. "'Let him wait, as their elders have done before him. "'Rosamond will take it hard, Vincey, and you know you never could bear to cross her.' "'Yes, I could. The sooner the engagement's off, the better.' I don't believe he'll ever make an income the way he goes on. He makes enemies. That's all I hear of his making. But he stands very high with Mr. Bulstrode, my dear. The marriage would please him, I should think. Please the deuce, said Mr. Vincey. Bulstrode won't pay for their keep. And if Lydgate thinks I'm going to give money for them to set up housekeeping, he's, mis he's mistaken. That's all. I expect I shall have to put down my horses soon. You'd better tell Rosie what I say. This was not an infrequent procedure with Mr. Vincey. To be rash and jovial assent, and on becoming subsequently conscious that he had been rash, to employ others in making the offensive retraction. However, Mrs. Vincey, who never willingly opposed her husband, lost no time the next morning in letting Rosamond know what he had said. Rosamond, examining some muslin work, listened in silence, and at the end gave a certain turn of her graceful neck, of which only long experience could tell you that it meant perfect obstinacy. "'What do you say, my dear?' said her mother, with affectionate deference. "'Papa does not mean anything of the kind,' said Rosamond quite calmly. "'He has always said—he has always said that he wished me to marry the man I loved, and I shall marry Mr. Lydgate. It is seven weeks now since Papa gave his consent, and I hope we shall have—and <sighs> I hope we shall have Mrs. Breton's house. "'Well, my dear, I shall leave you to manage your Papa.' You always do manage everybody, but if we ever do go and get Damask, Sadler's is the place, far better than Hopkins's. Mrs. Breton's is very large, though. I should love you to have such a house, but it will take a great deal of furniture, carpeting and everything, besides plate and glass, and you hear your papa says he will give you no money. Do you think Mr. Lydgate expects it? You cannot imagine that I should ask him, Mamma. Of course he understands his own affairs. 
But he may have been looking for money, my dear, and we all thought of your having a pretty legacy as well as Fred, and now everything is so dreadful. There's no pleasure in thinking of anything with that poor boy disappointed as he is. That has nothing to do with my marriage, Mama. Fred must leave off being idle. I'm going upstairs to take this work to Miss Morgan. She does the open hemming very well. Mary Garth might do some work for me now, I should think. Her sewing is exquisite. It is the nicest thing I know about Mary. I should so like to have all my cambric frilling double-hemmed, and it takes a long time. Mrs. Vincy's belief that Rosamond could manage her papa was well-founded. Apart from his dinners and his coursing, Mr. Vincy, blustering as he was, had as little of his own way as if he had been a prime minister. Had as little of his own way as if he had been a prime minister. The force of circumstances was easily too much for him, as it is for most pleasure-loving florid men, and the circumstance called Rosamond was particularly forcible by means of that mild persistence which, as we know, enables a white, soft, living substance to make its way in spite of opposing rock. Papa was not a rock. He had no other fixity than that fixity of alternating impulses, sometimes called habit. <clears throat> and this was altogether unfavorable to his taking the only decisive line of conduct in relation to his daughter's engagement. Namely, to inquire thoroughly into Lydgate's circumstances, declare his own inability to furnish money, and forbid alike either a speedy marriage or an engagement which might be too lengthy. That seems very simple and easy in the statement, but a disagreeable resolve formed in the chill hours of the morning had as many conditions against it as the early frost. And rarely persisted under the warming influences of the day. The indirect, though emphatic, expression of opinion to which Mr. Vincy was prone suffered much restraint in this case. Lydgate was a proud man towards whom innuendos were obviously unsafe, and throwing his hat on the floor was out of the question. Mr. Vincy was a little in awe of him, a little vain that he wanted to marry Rosamond, a little indisposed to raise a question of money in which his own position was not advantageous, a little afraid of being worsted in dialogue with a man better educated and more highly bred than himself, and a little afraid of doing what his daughter would not like. The part Mr. Vincy preferred playing was that of the generous host whom nobody criticizes. In the earlier half of the day, there was business to hinder any formal communication of an adverse resolve, and the later there was dinner, wine, whist, and general satisfaction, and in the mean, while the hours were each leaving their little deposit and gradually forming the final reason for inaction, namely that action was too late, the accepted lover spent most of his evenings in Lowick Gate, and a love-making not at all dependent on money advances from fathers-in-law or prospective income from a profession went on flourishingly under Mr. Vincy's own eyes. Young love-making, that gossamer web, even the points it clings to, the things whence its subtle interlacings are swung, are scarcely perceptible. Momentary touches of fingertips, meeting of rays from blue and dark orbs, unfinished phrases, lightest changes of cheek and lip, faintest tremors, faintest tremors. The web itself is made of spontaneous beliefs and indefinable joys, yearnings of one life towards another, visions of completeness, indefinite trust. And Lydgate fell to spinning that web from his inward self with wonderful rapidity, in spite of experience supposed to be finished off with the drama of lore, in spite, of, in spite too, of medicine and biology, for the inspection of macerated muscle or of eyes presented in a dish, like Santa Lucia's, and other incidents of scientific inquiry, are observed to be less incompatible with poetic love than a native dullness or a lively addiction to the lowest prose. As for Rosamond, she was in the water lilies expanding 
expanding wonderment at its own fuller life, and she too was spinning industriously at the mutual web. All this went on in the corner of the drawing room where the piano stood, and subtle as it was, the light made it a sort of rainbow visible to many observers besides Mr. Fairbrother. The certainty that Miss Vincy and Mr. Lydgate were engaged became general in Middlemarch without the aid of formal announcement. Aunt Bulstrode was again stirred to anxiety, but this time she addressed herself to her brother, going to the warehouse expressly to avoid Mrs. Vincy's volatility. His replies were not satisfactory. "'Walter, you never mean to tell me that you've allowed all this to go on without inquiry into Mr. Lydgate's prospects?' said Mrs. Bulstrode, opening her eyes with wider gravity at her brother, who was in his peevish warehouse humor. "'Think of this girl, brought up in luxury, and too worldly away, I'm sorry to say. What will she do on a small income?' "'Oh, confounded Harriet! What can I do when men come into the town without any asking of mine? Did you shut your house up against Lydgate? Bulstrode has pushed him forward more than anybody. I never made any fuss about the young fellow. You should go and talk to your husband about it, not me.' "'Well, really, Walter, how can Mr. Bulstrode be to blame? I'm sure he did not wish for the engagement.' "'Oh, if Bulstrode had not taken him by the hand, I should never have invited him.' "'But you called him in to attend on Fred, and I'm sure that was a mercy.' said Mrs. Bulstrode, losing her clue in the intricacies of the subject. "'I don't know about mercy,' said Mr. Vincy testily. "'I know I'm worried more than I like with my family. I was a good brother to you, Harriet, before you married Bulstrode, and I must say he doesn't always show that friendly spirit towards your family that might have been expected of him.' Mr. Vincy was very little like a Jesuit, but no accomplished Jesuit could have turned a question more adroitly. Harriet had to defend her husband instead of blaming her brother, and the conversation ended at a point as far from the beginning as some recent sparring between the brothers-in-law at a vestry meeting. Mrs. Bulstrode did not repeat her brother's complaints to her husband, but in the evening she spoke to him of Lydgate and Rosamond. He did not share her warm interest, however, and only spoke with resignation of the risks attendant on the beginning of medical practice and the desirability of prudence. "'I'm sure we're bound to pray for that thoughtless girl, brought up as she has been,' said Mrs. Bulstrode, wishing to rouse her husband's feelings. "'Truly, my dear,' said Mr. Bulstrode, assentingly, "'those who are not of this world can do little else to arrest the errors of the obstinately worldly. "'That is what we must accustom ourselves to recognize with regard to your brother's family. "'I could have wished that Mr. Lydgate had not entered into such a union, "'but my relations with him are limited to that use of his gifts for God's purposes, "'which is taught us by the divine government under each dispensation.' Mrs. Bulstrode said no more, attributing some, dis some dissatisfaction which she felt to her own want of spirituality. She believed that her husband was one of those men whose memoirs should be written when they died. As to Lydgate himself, having been accepted, he was prepared to accept all the consequences which he believed himself to foresee with perfect clearness. Of course, he must be married in a year, perhaps even in half a year. This was not what he had intended, but other schemes would not be hindered. They would simply adjust themselves anew. Marriage, of course, must be prepared for in the usual way. A house must be taken instead of the rooms he at present occupied, and Lydgate, having heard Rosamond speak with admiration of old Mrs. Breton's house, situated in Lowick Gate, took notice when it fell vacant after the old lady's death, and immediately entered into treaty for it. He did this in an episodic way, very much as he gave orders to his tailor for every requisite of perfect dress, without any notion of being extravagant. On the contrary, he would have despised any ostentation of expense. His profession had familiarized him with all grades of poverty, and he cared much for those who suffered hardships. He would have behaved perfectly at a table where the sauce was served in a jug with the handle off, and he would have remembered nothing about a grand dinner except that a man was there who talked well. 
but it had never occurred to him that he should live in any other than what he w than what he would have called an ordinary way, with green glasses for hawk and excellent waiting at table. In warming himself at French social theories, he had brought away no smell of scorching. We may handle even extreme opinions with impunity while our furniture, our dinner-giving, and preference for armorial bearings in our own case link us indissolubly with the established order. And Lydgate's tendency was not towards extreme opinions. He would have liked no barefooted doctrines, being particular about his boots. He was no radical in relation to anything but medical reform and the prosecution of discovery. In the rest of practical life he walked by hereditary habit, half from that personal pride and unreflecting egoism which I've already called commonness, and half from that naivete which belonged to preoccupation with favorite ideas. And we, any inward debate Lydgate had as to the consequences of this engagement which had stolen upon him turned on the paucity of time rather than of money. Certainly being in love and being expected continually by someone who always turned out to be prettier than memory could represent her to be did interfere with the diligent use of spare hours which might serve some plodding fellow of a German to make the great imminent discovery. This was really an argument for not deferring the marriage too long, as he implied to Mr. Fairbrother. One day that the vicar came to his room with some pond products which he wanted to examine under a better microscope than his own, and finding Lydgate's table full of apparatus and specimens in confusion, said sarcastically, Eros has degenerated. He began by introducing order and harmony. Now he brings back chaos. Yes, at some stages, said Lydgate. Said Lydgate, lifting his brows and smiling while he began to arrange his microscope. But a better order will begin after. Soon, said the vicar. I hope so, really. This unsettled state of affairs uses up the time, and when one has notions in science, every moment is an opportunity. I feel sure that marriage must be the best thing for a man who wants to work steadily. He has everything at home, then. No teasing with personal speculations. He can get calmness and freedom. You are an enviable dog, said the vicar, to have such a prospect. Rosamond, calmness and freedom, all to your share. Here am I with nothing but my pipe and palm animalcules. Now, are you ready? Lydgate did not mention to the vicar another reason he had for wishing to shorten the period of courtship. It was rather irritating to him, even with the wine of love in his veins, to be obligated to be obliged to mingle so often with the family party at the Vincy's, and enter so much into Middlemarch gossip, protracted good cheer, whist-playing, and general futility. He had to be deferential when Mr. Vincy decided questions with trenchant ignorance, especially as to those liquors which were the best inward pickle, preserving you from the effects of bad air. Mrs. Vincy's openness and simplicity were quite unstreaked with suspicion as to the subtle offense she might give to the taste of her intended son-in-law, and altogether Lydgate had to confess to himself that he was descending a little in relation to Rosamond's family. But that exquisite creature herself suffered in the same sort of way. It was at least one delightful thought that in marrying her, he could give her a much-needed transplantation. "'Dear,' he said to her one evening, in the gentlest tone, as he sat down by her and looked closely at her face, "'but I must say that he had found her alone in the drawing-room, where the great old-fashioned window, almost as large as the side of the room, was open to the summer sense of the garden at the back of the house. Her father and mother were gone to a party, and the rest were all out with the butterflies. "'Dear,' "'Your eyelids are red.' "'Are they?' said Rosamond. "'I wonder why.' "'It was not in her nature to pour forth wishes or grievances. "'They only came forth gracefully on solicitation. 
as if you could hide it from me, said Lydgate, laying his hand tenderly on both of hers. Don't I see a tiny drop on one of the lashes? Things trouble you and you don't tell me. That is unloving. Why should I tell you what you cannot alter? They are everyday things. Perhaps they have been a little worse lately. Family annoyances. Don't fear speaking. I guess them. Papa has been more irritable lately. Fred makes him angry, and this morning there was a fresh quarrel because Fred threatens to throw his whole education away and do something quite beneath him. And besides, Rosamond hesitated, and her cheeks were gathering a slight flush. <laughs> Lydgate had never seen her in trouble since the morning of their engagement, and he had never felt so passionately towards her as at this moment. He kissed the hesitating lips gently, as if to encourage them. "'I feel that Papa is not quite pleased about our engagement.' Rosamond continued, almost in a whisper, and he said last night that he should certainly speak to you and say it must be given up. "'Will you give it up?' said Lydgate, with quick energy, almost angrily. "'I never give up, I never give up anything that I choose to do,' said Rosamond, recovering her calmness at the touching of this cord. <clears throat> "'God bless you,' said Lydgate, kissing her again. The constancy of purpose in the right place was adorable. He went on. It is too late now for your father to say that our engagement must be given up. You are of age, and I claim you as mine. If anything is done to make you unhappy, that is a reason for hastening our marriage. An unmistakable delight shone forth from the blue eyes that met his, and the radiance seemed to light up all his future with mild sunshine. Ideal happiness of the kind known in the Arabian Nights, in which you are invited to step from the labor and discord of the street into a paradise where everything is given to you and nothing claimed, seemed to be an affair of a few of a few weeks waiting, more or less. "'Why should we defer it?' he said, with ardent insistence. "'I have taken the house now. Everything else can soon be got ready, can it not? You will not mind about new clothes. Those can be bought afterwards.' "'What original notions you clever men have,' said Rosamond, dimpling with more thorough laughter than usual at this humorous incongruity. "'This is the first time I've ever heard of wedding clothes being bought after marriage.' "'But you don't mean to say you would insist on my waiting months for the sake of clothes,' said Lydgate half thinking that Rosamond was tormenting him prettily, and half fearing that she really shrank from speedy marriage. "'Remember, we're looking forward to a better sort of happiness even than this, being continually together, independent of others, and ordering our lives as we will. Come, dear, tell me how soon you can be altogether mine.' There was a serious pleading in Lydgate's tone, as if he felt that she would be injuring him by any fantastic delays. Rosamond became serious, too, and slightly meditative. In fact, she was going through many intricacies of lace edging and hoisery and petticoat tucking in order to give an answer that would at least be approximative. Six weeks would be ample. Say so, Rosamond, insisted Lydgate, releasing her hands to put his arms gently around her. One little hand immediately went to pat her hair, while she gave her neck a meditative turn and then said seriously, There would be the house linen and the furniture to be prepared. Still, Mama could see to those while we were away. "'Yes, to be sure. We must be away a week or so.' "'Oh, more than that,' said Rosamond earnestly. She was thinking of her evening dresses for the visit to St. Godwin Lydgate's, which she had long been secretly hoping for as a delightful employment of at least one quarter of the honeymoon, even if she deferred her introduction to the uncle who was a doctor of divinity, also a pleasing though sober kind of rank when sustained by blood.' She looked at her lover with some wondering remonstrance as she spoke, and he readily understood that she might wish to lengthen the sweet time of double solitude. "'Whatever you wish, my darling, when the day is fixed. But let us take a decided course, and put an end to any discomfort you may be suffering. Six weeks! I am sure they would be ample.' 
I could certainly hasten the work, said Rosamond. Will you then mention it to Papa? I think it would be better to write to him. She blushed and looked at him as the garden flowers look at us when we walk forth happily among them in the transcendent evening light. Is there not a soul beyond utterance, half nymph, half child, in those delicate petals which glow and breathe about the centers of deep color? He touched her ear and a little bit of neck under it with his lips, and they sat quite still for many minutes, which flowed by them like a small gurgling brook with the kisses of the sun upon it. Rosamond thought that no one could be more in love than she was, and Lydgate thought, after all his wild mistakes and absurd credulity, he had found perfect womanhood, felt as if already breathed upon by exquisite wedded affection such as would be bestowed by an accomplished creature who venerated his high musings and momentous labors and would never interfere with them, who would create order in the home and accounts with still magic, yet keep her fingers ready to touch the lute and transform life into romance at any moment, who was instructed to the true womanly limit and not a hair's breadth beyond, docile, therefore, and ready to carry out behests which came from that limit. It was plainer now than ever that his notion of remaining much longer a bachelor had been a mistake. Marriage would not be an obstruction, but a furtherance, and happening the next day to accompany a patient to Brassing, he saw a dinner service there which struck him as so exactly the right thing that he bought it at once. It saved time to do these things just when he thought of them, and Lydgate hated ugly crockery. The dinner service in question was expensive, but that might be in the nature of dinner services. Furnishing was necessarily expensive, but it had to be done only once. "'It must be lovely,' said Mrs. Vincy, when Lydgate mentioned his purchase with some descriptive touches. "'Just what Rosie ought to have. I trust in heaven it won't be broken.' "'One must hire servants who will not break things,' said Lydgate. "'Certainly this was reasoning with an imperfect vision of sequences, but at that period there was no sort of reasoning which was not more or less sanctioned by men of science. Of course, it was unnecessary to defer the mention of anything to Mama, who did not readily take views that were not cheerful, and being a happy wife herself had hardly any feeling but pride in her daughter's marriage. But Rosamond had good reasons for suggesting to Lydgate that Papa should be appealed to in writing. She prepared for the arrival of the letter by walking with her Papa to the warehouse the next morning, and telling him on the way that Mr. Lydgate wished to be married soon. "'Nonsense, my dear,' said Mr. Vincy. "'What has he got to marry on? You'd much better give up the engagement.' I've told you so pretty plainly before this. What have you had What have you had such an education for if you're to go and marry a poor man? It's a cruel thing for a father to see. Mr. Lydgate is not poor, Papa. He bought Mr. Peacock's practice, which they say is worth eight or nine hundred a year. Stuff and nonsense. What's buying a practice? He might as well buy next year's swallows. It's it'll all slip through his fingers. On the contrary, Papa, he will increase the practice. See how he has been called in by the Chathams and Casabons? I hope he knows I shan't give anything, but this disappointment about Fred and Parliament going to be dissolved and machine-breaking everywhere and election coming on. Dear Papa! Dear Papa, what can that have to do with my marriage? A pretty good deal to do with it. We may all be ruined for what I know. pretty good deal to do with it. We may all be ruined for what I know. The country's in that state. Some say it's the end of the world, and be hanged if I don't think it looks like it. Anyhow, it's not a time for me to be drawing money out of my business, and I should wish Lydgate to know that. 
I'm sure he expects nothing, Papa. And he has such very high connections. He's sure to rise in one way or another. He is engaged in making scientific discoveries. Mr. Vincy was silent. I cannot give up my only prospect of happiness, Papa. Mr. Lydgate is a gentleman. I can never love anyone who is not a perfect gentleman. You would not like me to go into a consumption, as Arabella Hawley did, and you know that I never changed my mind. Again, Papa was silent. Promise me, Papa, that you will consent to what we wish. We shall never give each other up, and you know that you have always objected to long courtships and late marriages. There was a little more urgency of this kind, till Mr. Vincy said, Well, well, child, he must write to me first before I can answer him and Rosamond was certain that she had gained her point. Mr. Vincy's answer consisted chiefly in a demand that Lydgate should ensure his life, a demand immediately conceded. This was a delightfully reassuring idea, supposing that Lydgate died, but in the meantime, not a self-supporting idea. However, it seemed to make everything comfortable about Rosamond's marriage, and the necessary purchases went on with much spirit. Not without prudential considerations, however. A pride... A bride, who's going to visit at a baronet's, must have a few first-rate pocket handkerchiefs, but beyond the absolute necessary half-dozen, Rosamond contented herself without the, high, without the very highest style of embroidery and Valencians. Lydgate also, finding that his sum of eight hundred pounds had been considerably reduced since he'd come to Middlemarch, restrained his inclination for some plate of an old pattern which was shown to him when he went into Kibble's establishment at Brassing to buy forks and spoons. He was too proud to act as if he presupposed that Mr. Vincy would advance money to provide furniture, and though, since it would not be necessary to pay for everything at once, some bills would be left standing over, he did not waste time in conjecturing how much his father-in-law would give in the form of dowry to make payment easy. He was not going to do anything extravagant, but the requisite things must be bought, and it would be bad economy to buy them of a poor quality. All these matters were by the by. Lydgate foresaw that science and his profession were the objects he should alone pursue enthusiastically, but he could not imagine himself pursuing them in, the, in such a home as Wrench had, the doors all open, the oilcloth worn, the children in soiled pinafores, and lunch lingering in the form of bones, black-handled knives, and willow pattern. But Wrench had a wretched lymphatic wife who made a mummy of herself indoors in a large shawl, and he must have altogether begun with an ill-chosen Ill -chosen domestic apparatus." Rosamond, however, was on her side much occupied with conjectures, though her quick, imitative perception warned her against betraying them too crudely. "'I should like so much to know your family,' she said one day, when the wedding journey was being discussed. "'We might perhaps take a direction that would allow us to see them as we returned. Which of your uncles do you like best?' "'Oh, my Uncle Godwin, I think. He's a good-natured old fellow. You were constantly at his house at Quallingham when you were a boy, were you not?' I should so like to see the old spot and everything you were used to. Does he know you're going to be married? No, said Lydgate, carelessly, turning in his chair and rubbing his hair up. Do send him word of it, you naughty, undutiful nephew. He will perhaps ask you to take me to Quallingham, and then you could show me about the grounds, and I could imagine you there when you were a boy. Remember, you see me in my home, just as, just as it has been since I was a child. It is not fair that I should be so ignorant of yours.' "'But perhaps you would be a little ashamed of me. "'I forgot that.' "'Lydgate smiled at her tenderly, "'and really accepted the suggestion "'that the proud pleasure of showing so charming a bride "'was worth some trouble. "'And now he came to think of it. "'He would like to see the old spots with Rosamond. "'I shall write to him, then. "'But my cousins are bores. 
It seemed magnificent to Rosamond to be able to speak so slightingly of a baronet's family, and she felt much contentment in the prospect of being able to estimate them contemptuously on her own account. But Mama was near spoiling all a day or two later by saying, "'I hope your uncle, Sir Godwin, will not look down on Rosie, Mr. Lydgate. I should think he would do something handsome. A thousand or two can be nothing to a baronet.' "'Mama!' said Rosamond, blushing deeply, and Lydgate pitied her so much that he remained silent and went to the other end of the room to examine a print, curiously, as if he had been absent-minded. Mama had a little filial lecture afterwards and was docile as usual, but Rosamond reflected that if any of those high-bred cousins who were boars should be induced to visit Middlemarch, they would see many things in her own family which might shock them. Hence it seemed desirable that Lydgate should by and by get some first-rate position elsewhere than in Middlemarch, and this could hardly be difficult in the case of a man who had a titled uncle and could make discoveries. Lydgate, you perceive, had talked fervidly to Rosamond of his hopes as to the highest uses of his life, and had found it delightful to be listened to by a creature who would bring him the sweet furtherance of satisfying affection, beauty, repose, such help as our thoughts get from the summer sky and the flower-fringed meadows. Lydgate relied much on the psychological difference between what for the sake of variety I will call goose and gander, especially on the innate submissiveness of the goose as beautifully corresponding to the strength of the gander.'